So we are back. Hello, welcome to episode 33 of Candid. We are, uh, we, this time is just Alvaro and I. Uh, Josh is, uh, is away. Living the good life. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the weekend and he actually knows what to do with weekends. We're just kind of like, ah. <laughs> um, I think we should start with uh, just following up on a little bit of, um, of feedback that we received, actually. We, we always love getting feedback. And in this case, we came, uh, we had some feedback come from two different directions. The first of which was, um, a lovely iTunes review, very kind. Um, but I just I want to read the second half of it because they're very rightly calling us out on um, something that we can improve on. So this commenter said, as a longtime listener, one thing I find missing is discussion about improving your photography, not just the workflow that's covered, but more on how to get good at photography and resources which would help you become a better photographer. It's an excellent point. And uh, we absolutely take it to heart because uh, they're right. We sometimes get too lost in the gear talk and because I mean, for us, that's exciting. So it, we, it, it's natural that we get uh, lost when, when we start talking about that, that kind of thing. But we should absolutely cover the artistic and creative aspects of photography that I think sometimes we, we don't get into them too, too often. Right. And just so that you guys understand, behind the scenes, we actually are, we are trying to uh, to always put forth um, more of these technique related topics. But what, what's happened, especially in the in the past few weeks with Photokina, is that there's been so much news on the gear front that we feel is is important to discuss right. that all of this other stuff is just kept getting pushed and that's that's just our fault because ultimately at some point we've got to draw the line and just say okay no there's always going to be new gear news we need to we need to remember that the other half of this show is trying to talk about the craft of photography which exists independently of the tools that you're using for the most part so um, this episode actually is going to be um, a step in the right direction we hope because our, our main topic has nothing to do with gear um, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll get there We'll get there. So anyway, thank you very much for the feedback. As always, guys, if you do have a moment and you you want to leave us some some thoughts, iTunes reviews are a great way to do that. Um, it helps the show's ratings and, and rankings and helps other people discover. Um, and of course, like in this case, we read them, we really appreciate them, and we take them to heart. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And they're absolutely right. I mean, it seems like every time we have a very exciting topic to discuss, Sony releases a new camera. So it's, it's just, yeah. what can you do? Yeah. It's all Sony's fault, really. That's that's what it comes down to. Right. And speaking of Sony, our, our second follow-up item is all about uh, about that. It's from friend of the show, Dan Hawk, who was kind enough to write a very, very, very long piece of feedback for us, uh, <laughs> which we appreciate. Yeah. I, I think, so I, I'm not going to read it because it, he did write us a letter and it's, it's you know, it's a lovely letter. Yeah. But instead, instead, we can kind of extract maybe three main points that he's making. Um, and this is all, by the way, in response to last week's episode where we um, talked about Sony's new A6500 and we expressed some uh, discontent with the ergonomics of Sony cameras in general. Specifically, Josh and I did because Alvaro um, doesn't doesn't really have the same concerns. Um, but in any event, Dan has written in, and the first point that he makes is that um, the 6500, the A6500 is not really intended as a direct replacement to the A6300 in the lineup. They're, they're meant to exist in parallel. And I think that we agree with him um, yeah. unequivocally here. We, we maybe just didn't express it well enough in the, in the previous episode, but we, we absolutely do agree that this is not um, a replacement so much as... 
um, an addition to the lineup that happens to share the same nomenclature. Yeah, and it's been publicly stated by Sony that that is the case. So really, there's no yeah. there's no argument here. Uh, and it occupies a higher price point in the in the lineup, so it makes perfect sense to have both models uh, coexisting, and even the A6000, which still remains in the lineup. Exactly. So now yeah. Sony has three three different price points for APS-C shooters. You can get a pretty awesome camera for just 500 bucks. Uh, you can step up to 1,000, or you can step even higher up to 1,400 US dollars. Which you should. Which you really should. I mean, if you're if you're going to the A6300, you might as well go up all the way, because the differences there are, yeah. are definitely worth it. Yeah, and this parallel exists, by the way, in the RX100 lineup as well. And I think that's the clearest example because they saw it working so well there where uh, basically every generation of RX100 is still available. So you just, you know, you choose how much money you want to spend and you get incrementally better right. camera for your money. Um, and that that works out well. And the, the, the confusing part about that is that uh, with the RX100s, at some point you get into overlapping price ranges with the A6300s and then you start making decisions about, okay, wait a minute, is a compact camera really what I'm after if I'm spending this much money and so on and so forth. But in any event, the, we, we agree with Dan on, on that front. Yeah. And that's funny because Sony can, can do that because the the camera industry is a lot more has a longer shelf life. Like you, you can buy a camera and it's going to keep working just as well five years from now. And you can still sell that camera yeah. because image quality wise, the gap is probably not going to be too big with the newer models. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine if smartphones were like that? <laughs> I mean, if, that would be a very different world. If you could still buy the iPhone 3G, for example, or even the original iPhone, uh, of course, it's impossible because each year the software iterates forward at a tremendous pace and the hardware becomes physically incapable of running the new version of the OS. It's, it's, I guess it's a two-part question that I have. What would cameras be like if their software improved at the same pace that smartphones software does? And the other way around is what would the smartphone market be like if it didn't, right? So anyway, food for thought. Yeah, food for thought. Um, Dan also takes us to task a little bit about the uh, discussion of Sony ergonomics. So he points out that uh, this is a matter of opinion. And of course, if, if we came off as trying to leverage some objective judgment against them, that's really not what we were up to. Um, he points out that he much prefers the Sony ergonomics. He doesn't actually like the clicky dials and buttons of Olympus and Fuji. That's a direct quote. And um, he also doesn't like the shallower grip on the Fuji cameras, for, for example. Um, he calls out the X-T1 and even the X-T2 on that front. Right. Um, and, I, you know, that's all perfectly fair. I think that this is just another example of why it's so important to have a lot of options in the industry. And we are at a point, we've said before, where you can't really buy a, a bad camera. So these things are tending to be the more important consideration I find is, is how comfortable are they for you to shoot with? How intuitive are they to operate and how, um, how much do they inspire you to take your camera and go out and shoot? Right. Because that's, that's the important thing, right? If you're not getting images, then it's kind of not worth spending the money. Um, so Dan is just, you know, for all of the, those of you out there who prefer Sony's ergonomics, or you just appreciate them, uh, you're not alone and don't, you know, don't <laughs> <laughs> take what we say with a grain of salt because we just, it's just another set of opinions. And to be fair, I think there may be some misunderstanding going on here and it's definitely on us. Uh, I get the feeling sometimes that when you guys especially are talking about Sony ergonomics compared to Olympus ergonomics or Fuji, uh, most of the time we're talking about things that aren't strictly speaking ergonomics. 
like we're talking about the feel of the buttons, the dials, the menu system. Right. Whereas intuitively, I tend to think ergonomics is more like the shape of the body and how it feels in your hand when you hold it. Yeah. And if if you take it to mean that, then absolutely Sony cameras, especially the A7 series cameras, they do have pretty good ergonomics. I mean, and I don't know that there's an Olympus body that feels better in the hand than an A7R2, for example. Right. Uh, I mean, even the the new AM1 Mark II, because it's smaller, it yeah, it feels great in the hand, and it it probably will be a bit better balanced because the lenses are physically smaller too. But the Sony cameras are pretty good in that in that regard. So right. Point taken, Dan. Yeah. Um, and the last point that he makes is just uh, in defense of Sony's. Um, OLED EVFs, uh, and this is something that we haven't really read too many complaints about, but apparently people are fairly critical of these, and Dan points out that he likes them very much, uh, especially the colors, um, and I think that's that's fair. I, I think that always when it comes to OLED technology, there's this um, notion that they're not very accurate in terms of um, color reproduction, and I think that that's actually a bit of a holdover from older generations of the technology where they hadn't really refined uh, the ability to uh, just avoid that that crazy oversaturated look that OLED screens were were known for, um, right? And you know that kind of thing looks great on a smartphone screen, but when you're dealing with an EVF, you're you're looking for accuracy above all else. You know, a camera is at heart a precision imaging instrument. It's not it's not designed to be the place where you're viewing your images and want them to look all artificially um, punchy. I don't know that I agree with that. Actually, I don't know how much thought and care companies put into making the EVF color accurate or contrast accurate as and especially the rear displays like the, the the back LCD of a camera is the last place where I would look to make sure my colors are fine I mean I, I if, if I require color accuracy for a pro, for a given project I would definitely have a computer with a properly calibrated display and I would tether the camera to it and I would review my images there. I wouldn't trust the the back LCD at all, or the EVF for that matter. So, yeah, I, I guess we should probably try to find out because I, I for one, don't know about that. But I wouldn't put my <laughs> my money there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I'm just trying to think here. I think the uh, so I've seen some marketing around the accuracy of displays. Um, I've seen some on the Olympus sites. I know that um, Fuji puts a little bit of effort on this front, at least for the EVFs. Um, and I think a lot of it has more to do with accurately depicting contrast than necessarily colors, because uh, you want to be able to see if an image is hazy or if, right. or if things are going to be blown out. And you want it to be like, you want to be able to make that uh, distinction ideally without having to have the uh, histogram up on the screen. And of course, that's going to be the more accurate thing. And you should do that anyway. But I'm just saying as a, as a general rule, if you can judge the, um, the, the quality of the exposure without having to uh, rely on histograms, that's probably a good thing. And I would imagine that manufacturers are trying to make sure that their EVFs and even the the rear LCDs um, are usable for that, even if not um, right. in a color accurate way. And that's that's fine. I think, like you said, if, you're, if color accuracy is one of your main priorities, then first of all, you're shooting um, one of those, you know, color measurement things before every shoot so that you can properly um, fix things in post. And like you said, you're doing all of your work on a properly calibrated screen after the fact. Right. And there's also the matter that you never know if the camera is showing you 
the actual raw picture or, or if it's showing you an in-camera generated JPEG of it. Exactly. So yeah. you can't you can't be sure that what you're seeing there is the real deal. So if you can use a computer, yeah. then by all means do so. So that was Dan's feedback. Uh, again, we're very grateful for it. Uh, he sent his feedback in via email. And if you guys prefer that, if you want to send us a letter instead of a, an iTunes review or something like that, you are more than welcome to. We can be reached at hello at candid.fm. Um, that generally comes to me, but then I share it to everybody else. So um, by all means, fire away. And uh, we look forward to uh, to hearing from you. Yay. All right, let's dig into the meat and potatoes of this episode, shall we? All right, let's do this. Although our first item is actually kind of follow-up in a way. It's not follow-up from the show itself, but it's follow-up from, you know, our lives outside the show. Oh, right, yes. And uh, it's, of course, all about your PenF review, which was published this week on your site, on mariusmasaller.me. Yep. Or .me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, I really love the review, man. It was stellar work. Thank you. And it, it was actually not only beautiful to look at, but it was very informative and very surprising because uh, as listeners uh, will know, you you switched systems because of the PenF. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> and that is that is pretty big, especially because I know you were pretty happy with your previous system. You were a Fuji shooter uh, and you had the, the relatively new X-Pro2, which is a fantastic camera. And yet the little Olympus PenF managed to completely change your world. So... Why don't you yeah. let us know how the process went? Like, was it love at first sight or did it take some getting used to? Um, so two things were love at first sight. First of all, the the actual um, the feel of the camera and the return to the small form factor of Micro Four Thirds, that, was, uh, that felt a lot like coming home. Um, again, for, for those who don't know, all three of us on the show actually used to shoot um, Micro Four Thirds before we got to our current respective systems. Yep. Um, and so, you know, when I when I got back to this, and I, I had kept one lens from my Micro Four Thirds days, I had kept the 45 millimeter uh, f1.8, which is sort of a, a well-loved portrait prime. Fantastic lens. Yeah. My favorite by far. It's it's really wonderful, and so, so I had that lens, and I you know I suddenly the Pen F appeared for review, and I uh, you know I picked it up, and I was like, oh man, this it feels so good to be back to these tiny tiny lenses, and that's a funny thing because of course Fuji is not a large system by any stretch of the imagination, and I came from Canon DSLRs before that, so I'm I'm used to large cameras, and I'm I'm okay with that. I did a lot of traveling right. with the 5D Mark II. Um, but it, it's enough of a difference that that immediately struck me as a positive. The other thing is I was immediately, um, immediately impressed by the images that I was getting out of the camera. So, um, a lot of my skepticism came from reading other reviews of the pen F where they basically said that even though it's got a slightly higher resolution, um, sensor, there's not an, there's not a meaningful improvement in the output. That was kind of the, the consensus that I was hearing from a lot of the other reviews. Yeah. And what I determined is that at least for, for my usage, there is a meaningful step forward. There is a lot more detail. And in fact, it feels unusual because technically there's only four megapixels of additional resolution here, but the files themselves feel a lot more detailed to me. Um, and, and working with them in Lightroom, there's just a lot more, uh, there's more there to work with. Um, so that, that to me was a, a surprise that, um, you know, all these other reviewers either didn't uh, care um, or they just... Didn't notice. Maybe they didn't notice. Yeah, like right. I, I, I'm not sure because I, I 
initially I thought I was wrong, right? So that's that's why this review took me so long because I was I was making some discoveries that I was like, okay, this flies in the face of everything else that I've read about this camera. What happened? What am I doing wrong here? What's going on? Right. And so it just took me a lot of time and like retesting and and really examining my my results to figure out, okay, well, for whatever reason, I'm, you know, this is not a fluke. This is actually the result I'm seeing and then trying to understand where it's coming from. Which is pretty great news anyway. And I have to say, I'm I'm very surprised because we made fun of this camera on one of our early episodes. We did, shamelessly. And, and yeah, we, we really didn't take it seriously at all. So I'm very glad to be proven wrong, absolutely. And as far as the, the relatively small increase in megapixel count providing that much detail, that might just be that the new sensor is better coupled, better matched to the lenses. Yeah. So if they if they design the lenses with a higher resolution target right from the beginning, perhaps the lower megapixel sensor, the old generation, didn't manage to to extract all the detail from the lens, and and now things are better matched. Yeah. So maybe it's not that this sensor is overperforming, but that the other one was underperforming. Yeah, and that might be the way uh, that it's gone. And uh, I think that anytime you're designing lenses, I would imagine that you're designing them to overshoot the current technology, right? I mean, there's yeah. because you understand as a or you should at least yeah, exactly you should because as a lens designer, you understand that lenses have a certain permanence to them that uh, camera bodies don't. I mean, camera bodies are always being improved. You switch them out, you change, it's fine. But typically, when you invest in lenses, you keep those for a while and so they have to uh, span generations worth of technology and you also have knowledge of the sensor development roadmap so you probably know what's coming exactly exactly so it's not like you're surprised and it's like oh wait suddenly there's more megapixels and now what um, no, so I, I, you, you might be right I think that certainly contributes to um, a, a portion of this because uh, I'm shooting all of the classic um, Olympus primes right now so I've got the uh, the 25 mil um, I've got the 17 and the 45 and the 60, the macro. And so all of those I'm finding are are performing. Some of them I'd shot with before, and those are the ones that are most useful to me in, in making this comparison because I am familiar with their output from the old 16 megapixel sensor. And now I'm seeing those same lenses used here. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is better. Right. And it's kind of similar to what I saw um, in Fujiland actually going from their 16 megapixel sensor to this 24 megapixel sensor with the X-Trans 3. That again was a, was a leap forward in, uh, in detail. And a lot of it had to do with, uh, with just the lenses being able to finally, like the, the sensor taking full advantage of uh, the resolving power of the lenses. Well, although that's, perhaps less surprising because you do have quite a, a significant increase in resolution going from 16 to 24. Yeah, that's a huge leap forward. Here it's four megapixels, so yeah. So that's easier to understand, yeah. Yeah, and another thing that I loved about the review is how you explain your your inner process. Like, it, you go back frequently to comparing your previous situation as a Fuji shooter, and you go over all these things that that are surprising to you and, and why they are surprising to you. And, and I think that was very interesting to read. It made for a very entertaining review. Yeah, well, I mean, unlike... Um, sometimes these reviews um, speak as though the camera exists in a vacuum. And to me, that doesn't make much sense because not only as, you know, as a consumer, you're going to be comparing it to your existing system, but right. as a photographer using this tool, you're comparing it to your existing system. Like, is it something that's bringing... 
uh, new capabilities to my workflow? Is it something that's, you know, like there's always that comparative element. And in my case, it's uh, it's directly compared to the Fuji files that I've been working with for the past uh, two years, basically now exclusively. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to illustrate that. I wanted to explain what happened um, as much to others as to myself, because like you said, this was, uh, you know, a lot of these things were surprising to me. I went into this review fully expecting to just kind of tick off all the boxes that we had complained about and be like, yep, it is to blah, blah. It is to this and this doesn't work right and blah, 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 blah. But instead, I found myself going, wait a minute, this is not what I was expecting. Right. Um, one of the biggest surprises and one of the things that I think is a little controversial in the review is that I am on average getting sharper files out of the Pen F than I am out of my X Pro 2. Which is, yeah. Which flies in the face of uh, of any sort of expectation because the X-Pro2 is uh, an amazing camera. It's a 24 megapixel sensor versus 20 here. It's also a larger sensor. Um, and in general, everything points to that camera obviously producing sharper images. And the reality is that for whatever reason, in my usage, it does not. And... Uh, in the review, I explain what I think this comes down to, and a lot of it has to do with the the way that Xtrans files are interpreted in post-production. I think that, um, especially if you are a Lightroom user, unfortunately, you're still getting the short end of the stick there. Like, there, Lightroom is really not capable of taking proper advantage of Xtrans files, because I spent a lot of time demoing Capture One and Irritant Developer and Raw Therapy and all these other alternative tools that each of them do a much better job getting a, a proper interpretation of Xtrans files than Lightroom does. And so I've, but even, even with that comparison in mind, I still found the Olympus files sharper. And my conclusion was that this has to do with the stabilization. Um, because a lot of the times people talk about stabilization and they, um, they kind of attribute its benefits to low light shooting, right? Like, oh, you can get slower. Right, yeah. Uh, lower shutter speeds in in low light, and that's great. But what they fail to take into account is that that system also works in the daytime. Like you're you're getting those benefits even when you're shooting at low ISOs, um, and it does make a difference. Like there is a degree of um, of stillness in the Olympus files that to to your eyes it just looks like they're sharper, um, even though the the resolution is lower. Yeah, the effect becomes a lot more visible the higher the resolution of the sensor because the same amount of motion will not cause as much blur on a lower resolution sensor as it would on a higher resolution sensor. Yeah. If you were to shoot with an A7R Mark II, which has 42 megapixels worth of, yeah. <laughs> of, of resolution, you would realize that with a lot faster shutter speeds, you are still getting some some amount of motion blur. Yeah. So that's that's why having decent stabilization is very important and we're already coming up to that resolution threshold that we're going to need image stabilization in situations where we didn't used to need them yeah because the the resolutions of the sensors are starting to reveal those exactly. those issues exactly. yeah so that's i think that's what i ran into um and the, the way that i framed it in the review is that i think it remains absolutely true that the fuji kit is capable of producing sharper images but the Pen F and presumably the the EM1 Mark II will be the same, but the uh, the Olympus setup right now is able to more reliably hit its maximum sharpness threshold because it is helping you um, overcome things like poor technique or uh, just the the basic jitteriness of of hands. I mean, we're human beings, right? We're not 
living tripods. So right. any anytime you're doing handheld shooting, this is advantageous. And since a lot of people's photography is handheld, um, you you end up getting the maximum potential sharpness out of an Olympus body a lot more easily than you do on a Fuji body. And that's meaningful. I mean, that's something that I, it just hadn't occurred to me in this way. And I didn't, I mean, I, I had taken advantage of, of stabilization, both in the body and in the lenses before, but somehow I didn't realize the impact until I went back the other way and went, oh, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is what I've been missing. Right. But this is not the sort of thing you get to see on a, on a feature checklist. You know? Right, exactly. Uh, but it's something that deeply impacts how you shoot with your camera in the real world. And that's something that we should always uh, pay attention to. Like, we've mentioned this on the show before, but it happens all the time. And we're not necessarily making the smartest purchasing uh, investments if we don't take this into account. For example, we've discussed at, le at length the two 85 millimeter lenses for Sony cameras here on the show. And yeah. I, what I realized at Photokina when I actually used them is that despite the the GM perhaps being sharper and better and whatever, for the type of photography that I'm likely to use it for, it's actually worse than the baddies because it's, it's not stabilized and the autofocus is lower. So right. yes, if you have a perfectly still model, the GM will create a better image. But if you plan to shoot the same picture on the street with a person that's moving randomly, the baddies will give you sharper practical results so that's it's the same same analogy that's that was what's going on here with your with your experience between the pan f and the x pro 2 one camera is technically superior under a controlled set of circumstances but the other one is actually in practice out in the real world in in a more flexible environment is going to be able to create a better result. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing, like you said, that unfortunately gets lost a lot in the um, the narrative around uh, cameras and, and the majority of reviews because they're talking about cameras uh, sort of in isolation a lot of the times. Right. Um, or, or not necessarily in terms of this, this type of real world usage. Um, it's very easy to get... Uh, caught up in the wrong side of the discussion and and make choices like you said that ultimately end up having a negative impact on your photography and then it's a mistake that you you end up having to take time to realize and then you end up having to correct it and it's it's annoying it's you know that's why um and it's not unique to me by any stretch of the imagination but that's why a lot of these um independent reviewers like um the three of us i think we all make an effort to discuss these real world um implications as much as we can because that's what is ultimately the most important factor when you're deciding whether or not to add a certain piece of kit to uh, to your equipment list. Absolutely. So don't worry, we got your back. Yeah. We buy all the wrong stuff so you don't have to. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, so that was my review. If you uh, if you care to read it, we'll probably toss a link into the show notes. Um yeah. but uh yeah, so we'll we'll probably have more on that later, especially as uh, as the EM1 Mark II makes its way to the market and things like that. But for now, that's uh, that's finally published. I'm glad it's you know I'm glad I've finally got that off my plate because it was kind of weighing on me that I wasn't able to properly articulate what was going on. Now I have, and we're done. Yeah. Now let's uh, let's go back to our first little comment there about talking about gear too much. Uh, we're going to steer away from gear and we're going to talk about um, uh, I think a philosophical topic. It's fair to call it that. Um, what we want to answer is the the question of what it is that makes an image compelling. Yeah, but this whole 
uh, I mean, for a bit of context uh, as to where the conversation is coming from. This all originated as a, a an in-house discussion between the three of us, where we were going over our preferred styles for different photographers or, or what to look for and what to strive for in your own photography. Uh, yeah. How you could make your photography either more compelling or more successful or more commercially viable. So it's all a topic that we've been going on over for, for weeks or months. And I think it's finally time to discuss it out loud publicly. Yep. Because it's a it's worthy of discussion. I mean, I'm I think there's plenty here that many people will find useful in their own photography. So so what we've done is we've tried to break down um, the ingredients, if you will, of a compelling image. And we've, we've come up with six that I think um, cover basically everything that that um, I look at or take into account when I'm interpreting an image. So um, we have composition, uh, lighting, subject matter, storytelling, processing, and then context, which is uh, not necessarily specific to a single image, but I think is still important when you're judging um, a photograph. Yeah, absolutely. And what what I've seen out there in on Instagram or on other photography based communities is that many people see a picture, and their reaction is often can be categorized in two or three separate groups. Like the first group is, what camera did you use to take that picture? Like what camera yeah. and what lens did you use to take that picture? <laughs> and the, yeah. the the thinking there is. If I buy that camera and that lens, I will be able to take pictures just like that, yep. which is really not the whole story. Then another group is, how did you edit the picture? Like, how did you get those colors? How did you get those that that look? Right? And and yep. the, the argument there is very similar. If I learn to edit a picture like that, people will love my photography and I will become more successful. Yep. Again, there's a lot more to the, to the, the story than that. So we're trying to sort of break the myth that there's one single element that you should focus on that will make you suddenly a Pulitzer winning uh, photographer. Because uh, unfortunately for some, but luckily for, for most people, this is a very complex area that requires plenty of effort and thought and care. It's an art form really, and it's not something you get to figure out one afternoon, like by applying a Lightroom preset. So. And that's why we have the wonderful experience of encountering photographers who are young and inexperienced, but are able to produce images that are stunning with terrible equipment because they are they haven't yet been caught up in the technical race of it and, and trying to overthink things. They are, in a sense, um, it, they're expressing the pure craft of photography. They're just... They're just seeing the world and capturing it with whatever they happen to have on hand. And there's an honesty to that that appeals to the rest of us. And then we try and recreate it and analyze what what has happened and things like that. And it's the same idea when we look at the the classics and the, the professionals out there and we admire their work. Um, I, I think that the most important thing we can do as, as growing photographers is to force ourselves to analyze those photographs on more levels than just those two that, that Alvaro pointed out, because I, it's, it's true and it is depressing. A lot of the times when you see a great image, the first few comments are, yeah, camera lens. And then how did you get those colors? What, you know, how did you process it? And those, are, that's kind of missing the forest for the trees in a lot of ways, because ultimately I think, uh, 
both Oliver and I share the opinion that if an image is great, then it is great before any processing has been applied, right? It, it should be, yeah. Uh, it, it should feel great coming out of the camera, and then the processing is just helping to shape a person's interpretation of it a little bit. Yeah, and I love the example that you did you gave earlier that that budding photographer who is just getting started and is managing to create amazing stuff with the most basic tools. Some people just have that vision, right? And and yeah. And there, it's unfiltered creative expression, which is great, yeah. and it's very raw, and it's very compelling. But even those people eventually have to learn to control the craft. It's not just the vision is great, but it's not enough by itself. And yeah. luckily for those of us, those of us who perhaps lack a creative genius, visionary instinct, that there's hope for us too. We can learn to master the technique and the and the rules, and we can become great photographers and we can create very compelling images. I mean, not all of us need to be Picasso to paint, right? That's yeah. where where I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So let's let's talk about composition. So that's that's the first one. I think it's the the elementary uh, foundation of an image. So it's composition is kind of the arrangement of objects within your scene. It is deciding what to include and what to omit um, and where to place things essentially. Yeah. Basically, it's a it's a way to guide your attention when you look at the picture. A good composition should tell you immediately what's important in the image. You shouldn't have to go looking for the subject. It should be it should jump at you, you know. Yep. And there are several rules, time tested rules, like the rule of thirds. I mean, that's not this is not the place to to explain the the rule of thirds. But if you have ever read a photography book, you're probably familiar with it. And the the, the reason these rules exist is because they work. They take into account how we visually process images in our brain, how the how the human brain works. And for example, at least in Western places where we our natural language is from left to right, we write from yep. left to right. Our visual processing goes the same way. You look first at the left part of an image, and then you move right. So the most important subject, if you place it on the left side, it's going to become more apparent than if you do it the other way around. I mean, there are plenty of rules like this. And I guess the point is, before you start breaking them, you should take the time to learn them and to and to play with them. Right, because, yeah, there's always examples of the opposite too, right? Like there are some strong compositions that exist exactly because they do not adhere to the rule of thirds and they they force you to ask questions or seek something out. And that is the point, right? Like that's what makes them compelling. But in order to make that effect work, you have to understand what uh, what rule it is that you're breaking and, and why. And I think that the other um, thing to mention here, and the, part of the reason I think why people love bokeh so much is because it makes composition seem easier, right? Because it, it right. gives you another way to exclude things except for your subject from the scene. And in a sense, it makes for lazy composition because of course, the only thing in focus is going to be the the subject of your composition, right? It makes it very straightforward. And that's why people, typically they start out with a portrait lens and then when you hand them a wide angle lens, they're like, oh crap, I have no idea how to use this because suddenly they don't have that crutch to fall back on, right? They, you can't easily separate your subject from the background optically. Instead, you have to position it, right? And that's the, I think that's the truly difficult part of composition is, is when you are using a wider angle or when you're using um, 
a fuller depth of field where you're not trying to just have this razor thin area in focus, then suddenly you have to take into account everything that's there, everything that's in the background. Is something going to be distracting? Can you use leading lines to point to your subject? Uh, that's you know a very cool and commonly used technique. So that's yeah, uh, that's where composition develops into its own thing, and and you have to. Uh, actually work at it. And that's why I think if you if you want to grow as a photographer, one of the first things that you can do is try out shooting a wider angle lens and do it with a, you know, shoot at f8 for a while, or, you know, f5, 6 or whatever, just try and um, separate yourself from that crutch of using bokeh as the only means to indicate what your subject is. Exactly. And I think it's very telling uh, about the importance of proper composition. If you go back and think about the photographs that we think of as historically relevant or artistic or you know those those images that have been compelling for a really long time it's remarkable just how few of those use shallow depth of field as their main composition technique yeah like they're almost always images with a very deep depth of field where you can actually see everything but still make you you get a very clear sense of what's important in the picture why and and it's all very instinctive and, and you don't need to blur everything out to achieve that effect. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's composition. And I think I'm going to skip ahead a little in the list because it, it makes sense logically to talk about subject matter right. uh, next. And by subject matter, we're, we're kind of, I mean, it's, it's does what it says on the tin. It's what you're taking a photograph of. <laughs> um, and a lot of the times, a lot of the times that can be um, enough. Uh, what I mean is if you are, uh, like someone who lives in the city is going to look at a photograph of an exotic uh, flower or insect or something like that. And it's going to be a lot more impressive to them because it's not something that they see um, in their daily lives, right? It's an unfamiliar thing. So even just the subject itself is enough to make that an interesting photograph for them. But again, if you're talking about making a timeless image, then you've got to think pretty carefully about what your subject is. And I think that where this comes into play most is especially for something like travel photography, if you're going to visit a place like the Taj Mahal, is it the Taj Mahal itself that is the most interesting way to depict, uh, depict that scene or that experience? Or is there, is there another facet there? Is there something else that you can focus on that perhaps um, just gives a different perspective, right? Like right. What, what happens if you're shooting the reflection in the water instead or the people, right? Like there's, there's just other ways to, to, um, like other subject matter other than the obvious, I think. And that's what is often difficult to look for is if if your goal is to convey a certain scene, what is the less obvious way of communicating it? Right, absolutely. And then it goes both ways too, because you can have, you can make an image compelling by choosing a subject that is out of the ordinary, like a very special, like you said, a very special flower or or building or place or pre or person, whatever. But you can also look for compelling images in the mundane, in the in the ordinary, in the everyday, in our everyday lives. And you can pick certain elements that are around us all the time, but we never stop to look at them, like a crack on the on the ceiling, for example, or something that's on the ground or whatever. Everyday items then when looked at in a certain way become much more interesting. And that's a, a very special form of photography that I personally really like because it kind of trains you to look for things 
around you in a different way. You don't need to take a trip to the Amazon to take a compelling image. Yeah, You can just stroll around your neighborhood and you can find, I guarantee you, you can find 10, 20 things that are worth taking a picture of. But you just have to look for them. Yeah, this is this is to me one of the, the most, uh, it's what I feel as a challenge. And that's why a lot of photo walks will, will encourage you to just go out in your own town exactly for this reason. And they tell you to try and think of your city as if you were a tourist visiting it. Right. And that trying to be in that mindset just automatically triggers different kinds of um, things in your brain. So you're looking at things differently. You're, you know, and as a photographer, I think that our goal is to try and um, show the world in different ways. Right. Um, versus the obvious and versus what what we're used to seeing. And I, that's why I, I totally agree with you. Some of my favorite images are images of mundane things, but presented in a way that is radically different or, or it shows you a mundane thing in a way that makes you interpret it radically and and that's to me that's very cool because it's that's the power of photography right is is you're looking ultimately the, the subject doesn't change but the interpretation around it can absolutely all right storytelling storytelling which is it also relates to subject matter and, and composition of yeah. course because when you sort of stage your subject in the environment uh, sometimes, especially if you're talking about street photography or reportage or photojournalism or anything, you're trying to tell a story. You're trying to depict a moment in time and make the viewer feel as if they were there, as if they were participant, uh, as if they know what happened uh, in the moments before and after the picture was taken. Yep. And that's an incredibly powerful uh, communication form. The best photographers can absolutely achieve that effect. Yeah, I mean, to me, when I think of storytelling images, I'm, I'm trying to think of, um, I don't know what it's called, but the one uh, of the tank and the protester in right. Tiananmen Square. Right. Like, that's an example of a storytelling image because all you have to do is look at that picture and you kind of understand what's going on there. There's a there's the conflict and there's a, an amazing sense of scale, right? Like, the the bravery of this human versus tank situation is... It, it's obvious, it's clear, and it's powerful. Like, it's an affecting image because you're trying... Like, even if you don't know the historical context, you're looking at that and you're going, wow, that's that's an important moment. That's something remarkable that's going on and that's been captured. And that is very valuable. And of course, that's a very extreme example. It's not like you're going to be taking photos like that every day. But I think it is important to strive for those kinds of moments and to try and um, look for them when you're taking a photograph, even if it's something mundane, even if, you know, it's a seagull that snatched something away from from a child, like an ice cream cone or whatever, and the kid is looking up after, like, just trying to make it so that there is some sense of um, time in the image itself. So it's not just like a still life of something, you are also giving the impression that some things are changing in this scene and something has happened and maybe it's obvious what's happened, maybe it's not. Maybe the point is that you're forcing your viewer to ask some questions. Um, even that is fine. You know, as long as they are having that kind of reaction, as long as they are engaging with the photograph, you've made it compelling. And that's that's the storytelling aspect of it. And it is very, very difficult to make this work in a single image. I think if there's one of these that's like the most difficult, um, this would be the one that I would pick, absolutely, is just trying to tell a story within a single frame. Right. Yeah, definitely. And we had uh, a picture, a similar picture uh, to the one you described, uh, go viral recently on the internet. And it's a picture of a, a woman 
sort of standing gracefully with a long dress as soldiers are trying to sort of grab her and take her away. I don't know if you know the picture I'm talking about. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. The name of the lady in, in, that appears in the picture is Lacia Evans. I don't know if I pronounced that right or, or not. But, and anyway, this is an image that is incredible because of the moment that it captured and how it captured it, because you don't know what's happening exactly, but you kind of, you kind of can figure it out or can imagine it. And it's such a strong image. Like she's standing there with a very calm expression on her face and the, it's almost like she's pushing the shoulders back. Right. Like there's some, some invisible force that's keeping them from <laughs> touching her. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's incredible. And what makes this image interesting is precisely that you're trying to figure out what's happening. And yeah, and that's a powerful thing, right? Is if you can build that into an image, if you can make people curious about what's going on, that's awesome. And it, like I said, it's difficult, but when you manage it, it's uh, it's very satisfying, right? Because you you feel like you have actually um, captured that that moment very well. Um, but just all of this talk of the historical photos um, makes me think of one of the other points that we had, which is context. And this is the one that I said is not necessarily. Uh, it doesn't have to do with an image independently. It's got to do with how that image sits among other images or among text or wherever it happens to live. Right. Um, and that's where something like a photo essay is a perfect example because individually, the images may not tell a full story, right? And that's uh, typically that's what happens in a photo essay is you've got um, different scenes and you have to look at them together. You have to You have to interpret the whole essay to understand the story. And that's another uh, powerful thing to keep in mind when you're taking photographs is trying to visualize what it is that that photograph is going to be used for. Like, is this a social media post? Is it something that's going to be part of a photo essay? Is it, um, you know, a journalistic shot that's going into a newspaper or article or something like that? Like, understanding the the context that you're taking the photo for helps you make sure that it's going to be a perfect fit for something like that. And again, this is like we're, we're using these historical examples, but it could be something as mundane as, oh, I'm taking a photograph to be a blog post header. I better make sure I leave a lot of white space so that I can, you know, put text. Like even that is a decision based on, again, understanding this sort of thing. And uh, your image will be stronger in that context because you made that um, conscious decision to leave that room for text. Yeah, and if you're talking about uh, making the the picture fit in a in a group of other images, your your end goal should be that the total should be greater than the sum of its parts. Right, and that's something you can definitely achieve by by understanding the role each picture take uh, plays in the within the group. And so yeah. t take a moment to think about it and and arrange your images in a particular way, or maybe even choosing what to take a picture of what's missing in the group what what could fit here that still i haven't taken a picture of so yeah and i think that's the difference ultimately between a quote unquote snapshot and what we would want to call a photograph is that there has to be that intention behind a photograph there has to be yeah. a thought process that goes into it and you have to uh, I, I forget who coined the term but there's a, a photographer who pointed out that there's a difference between taking a photograph and making a photograph and it sounds a little you know hokey but it, it's true i mean it's an important way of thinking of things like if you are making a photograph it means that you cannot be lazy like it is not a process of just spraying and praying that you catch the moment it has to be something that uh that is meaningful to you like you you have 
stopped, you have paused, you have understood what you visualized what you want to get, and then you have had the technical skill and the equipment required to execute on it. And that's that's actually the only part where your equipment is important, right. is making sure that whatever you visualize, you have the equipment to take advantage of. And that's that's it. Like as long as that is covered, it doesn't matter what you're shooting with. Exactly. Uh, it really doesn't. And it's that's that's why um, we're we're talking about this because you know it, in talking so much about gear, it's easy to get lost in this notion that oh, if only I had that camera and lens, that's all I would need. But that's that's really not that's not the case at all. Right. And this intentional aspect applies to every single photography situation. Like it's easy to think that if you're a reporter trying to document something that's happening on the streets that you don't have a choice on you that you cannot really make the image that you're just capturing what happens but that's not true at all you have tons of choices you can make you can choose to capture it with a wide angle or a longer lens you can choose to stand in one place or another there there are tons of elements that are not trivial that you have to decide for yourself and the end result changes dramatically depending on your choices so yeah it's always an intentional and, and very deliberate process. And speaking of the end product, this is what brings us to our final um, aspect of a compelling... Wait, wait, wait. We, we skipped one. We skipped lighting. Oh, geez, geez. <laughs> that's kind of an important one. We skipped lighting. Yeah, but this is more technical expertise, right? I mean, yeah, learning to play with the light. After all, it is a very important aspect, of course, because light is what makes a photograph. After all, uh, you're letting light onto your sensor. And that's what creates the image. Yep. So, of course, lighting is super important. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that once you learn or learn to appreciate the difference good lighting makes in an image, you really can't go back. Yep. It's, it's day and night. Pardon the pun. Yep. <laughs> no, it's true. And this is, yeah, you're right. This is kind of the most technical of the um, aspects that we've identified. It's also the one that I'm personally working on right now, specifically in artificial light, because once you master what's going on with natural light and you you learn when to shoot, you know, the whole golden hour thing. Right. Um, once you're past that, you start to get into situations where you don't have that light when you need it, but you still want to be able to get the exposure that you want. And that's where you start having to rely on artificial lighting. And unfortunately, artificial lighting is very... Um, daunting yeah i think uh, a lot of photographers are like oh no i just shoot natural light and a lot of the times it's it's because they are terrified of of trying to or lazy uh, or, or lazy both. yeah but either way it's they're trying to avoid uh working with artificial light and thanks to you know resources like uh david hobby's um strobist uh website and things like that it's actually a lot easier than you think to get started with flash photography and i think it's a very important skill that photographers should uh, should get because especially for things like portraiture that uh, a lot of people are interested in doing having the ability to use off-camera flash uh, appropriately will like you're going to win at instagram and facebook with yeah. your circles yeah. because all of a sudden <laughs> your images are going to look amazing compared to what you could get um, otherwise and so it's it's one of those things that yes it's daunting yes it's a little bit uh, involved in the sense that you need to do some studying uh, and practicing, a lot of practicing, but it's worth it. And it's something that um, once you have it, it becomes another tool in your toolbox and shots that you previously couldn't get, you now will be able to. Yeah, and it's so empowering too, because once you learn to control the light, you become able to take pictures anywhere. Like yeah. You can create the same lighting setup 
anywhere and you know the light's going to work. Whereas if you're working with natural light, it's an element that's completely outside of your control. I mean, yes, you can modify yeah. it, you can bend it a little bit, but being able to create the light from scratch the way you want it is an incredibly valuable asset and, and it will make you that much more deliberate in your photography too. But of course, it will, in the end, it will produce better results. Yeah. And I, I, I just don't get why people feel like shooting natural light is easier. I mean, it's easier because it requires less gear, perhaps. But natural light is super tricky to work with. Like you have to know when to go out. You have to know the differences between a sunny day and overcast day, uh, between the golden hour, the midday, between where you're standing in the shade and the sun. If you require like an umbrella to soften the light, if you require a reflector to bounce the shadows, whatever, it's it's a lot of work to just be able to create a consistent output in natural light. I mean, of course, if you're just letting every picture come out in, in whatever way, depending on the light that day, then you're really not doing anything. You're just clicking the shutter. Right. But I think that's what a lot of, you know, it, photographers that uh, up until the stage where they're trying to go a little more pro, that is exactly what is going on. I think a lot of the times it's just like, oh, this is the light that I've got to work with. I guess we'll just, you know, do what we can with this light. And that's, that's it. And only after a little while do they start to say, well, I guess we could use a reflector to try and shape it a little bit. But you're right. I mean, ultimately, once you understand what it means to use off-camera flash, it actually gets a lot easier to work that way because then it doesn't matter what the ambient conditions are like to a large extent because you don't care. The whole point is that you are creating your own light and you can create whatever kind of light you want, right? That's the beauty of it is once you understand what constitutes beautiful light for a particular kind of photograph, you can build it yourself. You can make things look like they're naturally lit when they're not. And that's, you know, that's something that you see a lot in in high-end photography where things look like they're just, oh, natural light and it's beautiful and look at the natural light. But meanwhile, those shots are totally done with artificial light. Yeah, it just is done so well that you don't notice it. I actually, there was this really funny post on Craigslist um, that I was looking at the other day. Someone was looking for a photographer here in Toronto and they were, uh, they were super adamant that you must be a natural light photographer only. And they had a bunch of example images that were all shot with flash. And I was like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you're mistaken about what natural yeah, I means. Think, I don't think you understand. Yeah. But anyway, so that's that's lighting. And I think that, uh, like I said, that's the one that I'm playing with right now is is learning to work with off-camera flash, learning to make best use of modifiers. And uh, yes, it's, you know, like I said, it takes practice, it takes some research, but it's totally worth it. Yeah, especially if you're something like a portrait photographer where you absolutely need to take control of the light. I mean, some portrait photographers, very famous ones, they have like a reputation that they can make any picture, uh, any person look good. And that's not because they only work with good looking people or because they only shoot with a very expensive camera. That's because they are absolute masters of lighting. They, they can make it so that your imperfections are barely barely visible, whereas your strong features are right in, in the middle of the action. In yeah, the, in and that's the, where lighting also feeds into things like composition and storytelling, because you're using the light as another element to help highlight the things that are important in that composition. And that's why, especially in something like portrait um, lighting, you get all these different approaches and some of them are highlighting like the contours of someone's face. Like you can, you can make their face look angular. You can really accent cheekbones and cast harsh shadows and things like that. You get a very dramatic look exactly. or it can be this soft, beautiful glow that just makes them look like they're floating in this ambient sphere of 
of light. And it's like all these different things that you can control yourself and make repeatable from shot to shot, right? Like you don't have 30 seconds of light until, uh, you know, a cloud passes over and suddenly it's like, oh, well, I guess we're done here. Uh, you know, when, when you're controlling the light, it's all on you and that's empowering. And this happens in movie making too, because many productions, uh, especially these days that are shot uh, inside a studio with a green background and then they add the the landscape afterwards in post. Yeah. They do it not only because it's uh, easier to have everyone there in the same place all the time, but because it's actually a lot more uh, controllable. Like you don't, you're not at the mercy of it being overcast that day. If you require a sunny day, because that's what your script demands, you cannot wait for it to be sunny in Scotland, for example, because it could take you forever. So yeah, <laughs> basically what you have to do is find a way to create a lighting setup that looks like the one you want to depict and then give you enough latitude in processing to fix it and get the the final product to look just right. And that's what they do. They All these yeah. scenes that look like they're shot outside, they're actually shot in a studio. And you can't even tell because the people who are in charge of the lighting did their work and they did it very well. So that's how you get those, those things to look right in the end. Uh, yeah. But I wanted to go over another, an extra item that I just thought up on the spot because we didn't mention it before. And in combination with lighting, especially for portrait photographers, is absolutely important, it, which is posing. Oh, yeah. This is a, yeah. a very, very important aspect. You absolutely need to stop and think. If you're working with people, you need to learn several posing techniques because that's going to make a huge difference. Yeah, It's something that not many people... Uh, take the time to learn because they like to be spontaneous or anything. It usually is the same kind of people who only shoot natural light. <laughs> they start telling people, oh, just be yourself. Smile, look away. Right, or, yeah. but <laughs> there's a lot more to posing than that. There, it's, it's actually something you can totally learn. You can create a framework, uh, a number of poses that should flow from one to the other naturally so you can take them sequentially and everything's going to be a lot easier than if you're just trying to think of an interesting pose on the spot. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, posing is one of those things that uh, is, again, kind of scary and daunting because you have to uh, basically tell people how to move and how to be. And especially for folks who are not professional models, it can be, right. uh, you know, it can be a challenge to communicate that in a way that, that helps them uh, be able to do what you're after comfortably. Right, because that's that's ultimately what you want is you want them to to look normal, natural, whatever. But oftentimes, when you tell people to look natural, that's when they become their most scarecrow like. Yeah. So especially if you're trying to capture intimate images, like for example, boudoir photography, which by definition is done with people who are usually not professional models, right? And in a very intimate situation, you absolutely need to learn to be uh, to to inspire confidence in your model and to get them to trust you that to know that whatever you're telling them to do is going to work in the end. Yeah. Because that's where that person's going to be super nervous and then they're going to be, at, at least at first, they're going to, it's going to take them a while to develop some trust with you. So it's something that having an established, uh, established system that works is going to give you the peace of mind and the, the more confident you look and the, the more confidence you're able to transmit to them, the easier everything's going to go. Yeah, but ultimately within the context of just interpreting images and what makes an image compelling, um, the, the pose is very important with people and sometimes you get to control it and sometimes you don't. 
uh, especially in you know reportage situations where you're just trying to capture right. um, a pose or a moment that that happens to convey your message um, as best as you can. Um, but again, it's something to keep in mind. Like if you're going to have people in it, that's great, but also be aware of of uh, their mood, their facial expression, and their their general body form and and pose. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So now we get to number six or number seven now, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've made it to the end. Uh, yeah. So the last one, and, and I think the least important one, is uh, processing. And this is where Josh would jump in and tell us that we're wrong and that processing is actually very, very important. And he's right. It is it is very important. Actually, the next episode is going to be just Josh telling you all how we were, we're wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> look forward to that. <laughs> um, but for real, I, I think that processing is important. It's just that when I look at it in the context of these other ones, it seems like the least um, important or the one that I want to spend the least amount of time improving upon because exactly. I, I think that if I have a certain number of hours that I can dedicate to improving my photography, I'm going to get further by improving all of the other ones before processing, especially in an age where uh, for a lot of people, processing means choose a preset and tweak something right. rather than, you know, hands-on development of each image individually um, but but processing i think as a as a technique or as a part of the process the goal should not be to uh salvage something that is wrong <laughs> with the image right ideally you want the image to be looking more or less the way that you want it to as it comes out of the camera and then the only goal of processing is to do a little bit of tweaking to assist in the image's intended goal right and if it's to set a mood with a certain color cast then that's great if it's to um, use vignetting and a little bit of selective focus work to try and further highlight certain things that's great if it's to use micro contrast and uh, well clarity in lightroom terms to bring out the texture in someone's face for example to you know it's all these little details that processing can help you do but ultimately i think if you're relying on processing to make an image um, with a few exceptions like HDR and things like that, then you're probably not going about it the right way. Yeah, exactly. It's very difficult to make a compelling image uh, just by by relying on the processing alone. You, you right. really cannot take a, a, a dud of an image and make it a wow, super cool image. I mean, you can shock the viewer because you can choose to go with a very extreme form of processing, but really, that's not that's not telling you anything about the picture itself. That's not it, it's not adding much value, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, like you can make it look trendy and thus um, have a little bit of traction on your Instagram profile, but it's probably not going to suddenly go from being um, a useless image to a timeless image that people keep coming back to. And that's ultimately the the challenge. Yeah, and I guess that the the key thing here to think of is that you should aim to get your image as close to finished as possible in the camera itself. Like yep. that by the time you press the shutter, all that's left to do is very minor tweaks or ideally, like you said, applying a preset, tweaking a couple things, and that's that's it. You shouldn't be you shouldn't need to spend more than a few minutes processing each image. And of course there are certain photography uh, circles where that's not the case, especially high-end fashion photography, where we know that unfortunately yep. retouching is a huge part of the industry, which is, un it's, right. it's, it's too bad. I, I really don't like that uh, because it's, 
cheating for one. And it's also, it has several social implications that are very important that they fall out of this episode's focus, but... Yeah, yeah, but but even there, even there, there's something worth pointing out is that in a like high fashion context, the kind of editing that's being done is things like skin smoothing. It's not like, oh crap, I have to do a lot of dodging and burning because the lighting wasn't set up right. Like those images are coming out of the camera looking well-balanced with the light going exactly where the photographer wants it to go with the pose being perfect. You know, like those things are like those core elements are all in place. And for people like us who don't necessarily like the heavy body modification type um processing that image would be good to go in in my catalog but unfortunately for like you said a lot of these these high fashion places it's it requires a lot of retouching but yeah. most of it is like you know skin smoothing and things like that that are not actually part of the core um foundations of the image yeah absolutely uh, so anyway the the point here is that the processing is a cool technique that you can rely on to make your images perhaps a bit more popular on social media or something like that, where some people go wrong about this, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, which will be controversial, I, I can guarantee you. Uh, the people who rely on processing to become popular photographers, there are lots of those. I mean, lots of those. And that's something I, I strongly disagree with. When I take a look at an Instagram feed, for example, I don't usually pay attention to whether the colors are very consistent from one picture to another, to whether this photographer has a particular style that I can immediately recognize because of the processing. Right. I look for the composition. I look for what are they taking pictures of? Are they going for close-up shots? Are they going for landscapes? Are they going, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what type of photographer that person is, but I'm not just stopping at the colors, at the contrast, at the at the processing in, in definitive. And that's something that is unfortunately becoming more and more popular these days. And I really, I really dislike it. I tend to agree with you. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it doesn't surprise me because uh, places like Instagram are a haven for that kind of popcorn style, immediate satisfaction, punchy colors, HDR, nice landscapes, right? you know, frustrated hipsters in hats looking away from the camera. <laughs> um, all of that stuff plays very well, but it's not timeless and i think that when i when i look critically at the photography that i do all of the things that i'm criticizing myself for are not really related to processing they're related to is this image interesting is this something that i actually would want to return to have i have i told any story with this image is this you know like those are the kinds of things that i'm beating myself up over and that's why when i'm uh, when I have a little time to improve my photography, uh, the kinds of techniques that I'm trying to work on are things like lighting at the moment, and instead of right. uh, you know frequency separation in Photoshop, for example, um, the the latter is 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 cooler. It's more interesting, I think, um, in a lot of ways. Like superficially, it feels like a more uh, interesting thing to be learning. Yeah, for geeks like us, definitely. <laughs> exactly right. Like that's that's it's the geeky person that I'm feeding with that kind of uh, with that kind of time investment but ultimately if i'm thinking about my body of work and what i want it to look like 20 years from now i'm not sure that that is what's going to be improving uh right the output right and that's why that's why i'm trying to refocus uh and, and trying to uh, sort of keep the eye on the prize which is make the photographs better coming out of the camera and then worry about processing absolutely the problem here is this processing step has a disproportionate impact 
on certain types of photography. And this is our last topic of discussion for this episode, which is what changes when you consider photography exclusively as a creative form of expression, an art form, if you will, versus if you think of it as a job, like a, a, as right. a commercial job. Like you're a photographer and you have to pay the bills, you have to earn a living. If you're shooting weddings, if you're shooting boudoir, if you're shooting uh, portraits, uh, like, you know, headshots for actors or whatever. Yeah. It is true. The processing can absolutely make you more popular. It can help you define a personal style that people associate with you and that uh, clients will eventually ask you for. Yeah. And this is something that uh, Josh was actually uh, pointing out to us. He was very frustrated with a local photographer in his area who was doing wedding work. And um, a lot of their, well, all of their photographs uh, use the very popular look, which basically consists of crushing the blacks into oblivion and yeah. shifting everything a little over <laughs> in terms of hues. And that that's a look that right now is extremely popular in wedding photography. And thankfully, it's not that difficult to do in terms of processing. But what it results in is this particular person getting a lot of work, even though if you look past the processing, their images are not actually very compelling. And that's frustrating for someone like Josh, who's a perfectionist and who is a good photographer and who wants to be able to compete in a commercial sense as well as an artistic sense. Um, and it's almost like you end up pigeonholed into this this style of processing because that's what clients want, even though it's not right. authentic to the way that you would actually want to present that image. And that's where it becomes very difficult, um, especially because photography is not a easy, it's not an easy field to, to make money in um, at all. As you write, so it's you can't afford to be picky. No, no, and and it's getting harder and harder every day. Yeah. Exactly, you can't afford to be picky. So when a client says, "I want this look," it doesn't like no one cares that that look does not appeal to you. You've got to deliver it, and that exactly. can be frustrating to the artistic side. It is very annoying to me personally and frustrating, like you said. But I think it's still the the right thing to do here is to take the high road and and refuse to make processing the only thing that makes you different than every other photographer out there. Right. I mean, yep. you can definitely, it's okay to use processing as part of your workflow. And if it helps you get more clients and more happy clients, then by all means, go for it. But you, you shouldn't neglect all these other aspects that we've discussed over the past hour and a half. I mean, at the end of the day, the, time, the bulk of the time that you dedicate to becoming a better photographer should be spent elsewhere. Yeah. And yes, having a distinctive processing style that people can identify as your own is important if you're trying to sell your work, but it's not the only thing that's going to keep clients coming back to you. I mean, it doesn't matter if you create very colorful images and very nice looking pictures by applying a preset that's, that only you know about, if the pictures themselves are not compelling in all the aspects that we've mentioned. Because otherwise, yeah, your, your clients are going to look at the images for a while, but they're going to forget about them. And there's not going to be anything that's going to keep them coming back. Yeah. And I also think that this is, you end up pigeonholing yourself inadvertently. And this maybe is not so much to do with weddings, but in most kinds of other commercial photography, if you try and sell yourself just based on a look, then people associate you more with that look than with other aspects of your photography. So even if they have another gig that might be right up your alley, 
if that gig requires a different processing style and all they've ever seen from you is the one style that doesn't happen to fit that project, right. they're going to hire someone else and you're going to be sitting there going, well, wait a minute, I can totally do that. This is just, oh, wait a minute, it's the processing, right? So that's where right. this whole, you know, people always give this advice of consistency, like you you should always have a consistent look. And I understand the appeal of that, but I also... Um, Personally, I avoid it exactly for the reason that I just described is I don't want people to get the impression, clients, not people, but clients specifically, I don't want them to get the impression that the only kind of image that I can produce has a certain look to it, right? I, ideally, I want to help them look at the images and interpret them in terms of composition, lighting, posing, subject matter, etc., instead of the processing, because then when they're considering photographers for a gig, they're not thinking of me in terms of, oh, the dude with lifted blacks. Right. It's, oh, the dude who knows how to tell a story when it involves whatever, right? Like that's that's the uh, I, that's the way that I would like to frame the thought process of my clients. And that's something that um, you have to lead by example there, unfortunately. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I, I do have one last thing I'd like to say which is that when people ask us what's the best way to learn to become a better photographer, I cannot stress enough the importance of education, like in, as in formal education. There's a prevalent attitude towards learning photography that I've come across very often, which is the solve learning everything by experience, by trial and error. And that's really not the most efficient way to go about anything in life, but especially not photography. Because it's very frustrating. You're starting out and you do get very compelling images by chance, like by random occurrence. And you think you're onto something, but you may actually be creating vices instead. And once you develop those vices, it's going to take some work to break the habit and start anew with a healthy workflow and procedure. So my advice, if you'll take it, if you can sign up for a local photography course where you get to speak with a person and get some hands-on time with cameras and show your work to that person and get constructive feedback about it, that's going to make a world of difference. And it's going to frame your mind so much better to, to learn all of this stuff. So yeah, of course, there are, there's plenty of online resources you can, you can look for too if there's not a local uh, course available or something like that. But by all means, look for someone who already has that knowledge and try to learn from it. It's, it's, you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time you're trying to learn something new. And I see many photographers trying to do just this. I, I cannot stress it enough. I think that's not the way. I think you're going to be much better, much faster, and you're going to enjoy it so much more if you take the time to learn, you know, the traditional way. Well, there you go. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I, I think that uh, the only caveat there is that you really have to find the right person. Yeah. Because the, the big fear with anything creative, when you when you put creative fields through academia, it tends to destroy them. Um, so I, I would be very cautious. And that's why I think that you, you're right to point out that a, a personal mentor or someone that you can actually um, go out and shoot with in your own city is probably a better idea than your average course um, as long as that person knows what they're doing and knows how to teach. And that's where it becomes a, a challenge to find the right person. But you're right. Ultimately, they can they can stop you from, from taking on bad habits and then having to unlearn them down the road. Yeah, and even if it's just for the technical aspects of it, like to learn how to place the lights and to learn the rule of thirds or the, all the other compositional rules that there, that there are, those stu that stuff is very technical. Is very, it's just learning 
you could learn it out of a textbook. But if you can do it with a person that's guiding you, it's always much faster. And yeah, yeah once you get into creative concerns and, and creative considerations, then of course you have to expand your horizon as much as possible by getting familiar with many different photographers' work and trying to find what resonates with you and your particular style and develop your your aesthetic sense and creative sense of what photography means to you personally. Yeah. But that's an entirely different step. Right. Yeah. And and you're right. Ultimately, that's, that's what's important is uh, if you are able to participate in that technical learning um, by seeing how it contributes in a real world context, like being an assistant to a photographer on a shoot, that you like you'll learn more from that than any amount of textbook learning and it's more fun too yeah definitely so there you have it folks that is our um i guess in-depth look at what we think goes into making a compelling image um i honestly one of the things that i would love to see um is if you guys are listening and you're um you you have images that you find extremely compelling i would love you to send them to us maybe right. on twitter or via email or whatever because I, I, you know, I mean, there are certain images that I find compelling and I know why I find them compelling, but I bet if we ask for a bunch of different examples, we're going to get a huge range of things. So if you happen to have images that you think are interesting, send them to us and tell us why you think so. And if it has something to do with um, the elements that we've identified, or if we are missing something that, um, that you find very important or whatever the case may be. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it next show. Yeah, that's a great idea. Absolutely. I have those from time to time. <laughs>